0: Can we talk something else? Can, can we talk about something else? Hello out there. Before we get started, I just want to share something or some things that help me when I'm down. Uh, This isn't an ad, just a reaction to some of the conversations I've had with a few of you on the side. Despite common belief, suicide rates are highest in the spring. The media has enjoyed the narrative that the holidays cause people to end their lives, but it's not true. They do, but not at a higher rate. It's being forced to come out of hibernation and deal with people again. That spikes it. I've mentioned a few times my love for the colder months, the months where everything pales a little and people seem to humble up in response to nature's retreat to its near-deathbed. I'll quote the black crows here. The smell of hospitals in winter, and the feeling that it's all a lot of oysters, but no pearls. And I guess the winter makes you laugh a little slower, makes you talk a little lower about the things you couldn't show her. And it's a long December, right? (laughs) What's my point? And my point is that as long as you're depressed, you still have a shot. It means you still care, that you still feel. So if you are, or even if you're beyond that and you're numb, just know that you're not alone, truly you're not alone. You're always present with yourself, especially in the dark. Pills help, sure, but there's no better remedy than an honest conversation with yourself or if you're too wrapped up in your own web with a good friend or a therapist. And when all else fails, do what I do and uh, shotgun a king can. (laughs) Uh, See, I try to laugh, uh, self-deprecate, if you take yourself too seriously, you'll eventually take yourself out. Moe Sizlac handled it best when on a dreary afternoon, Barney belched in his face and stumbled out the door, breaking his pint glass as he left. Moe sighed and looked to the back room where he uh, sleeps at night with the kegs. A noose was hanging from the rafters. Moe headed in the room, but popped out a moment later with a broom and a dustpan and swept up the glass. As he did so, he looked back at the noose and said, quote, not today, old friend, <laughs> end quote. Not today. That scene is perfect and always works as a solid foothold for me when I'm down. Take care, friends. Sleep is strange, isn't it? We all do it, yet rarely acknowledge how strange it is. It's a psychedelic experience we each are forced to take part in, every day. If you don't get enough of it, it will seep into your waking life and contort it somewhat, until you finally concede, I gotta get some sleep. I experience from time to time a condition known as sleep paralysis. This is an event where one becomes stuck somewhere between sleep and wakefulness. You know that sweet spot in rest where you're just about to doze off and feel full of peace? That spot where at times you'll jolt out of like your spirit was about to escape you or something was about to steal it from down below and the place we go to sleep. Well, I get stuck in that spot sometimes. My eyes fly open, but I can't move. I fill with panic and all around me swirl the ghosts from my dreams. It's as if the door between my conscious and subconscious mind has a wedge shoved beneath it. The worst incident occurred a couple years ago in a cabin at Falcon Lake, Manitoba. This is the site of maybe the most credible UFO experience in Canadian history. The Falcon Lake incident, if you're curious. Anyways, I laid down to sleep off some early morning macros and just as I was about to shut down, my eyes popped open. The room... Seemed hazy, veiled. Someone was banging on my window. I tried to get up, but I was paralyzed. A shadow moved from the window, then began knocking on the front entrance of the cabin, which I could see through my partially open bedroom door. I struggled to snap out of the limbo I knew I was in, but I was frozen. The shadow moved over my window again, backlit by the bright early afternoon sun, and tapped the glass incessantly. It went from the front door to the window, moving with an inhuman fluidity. I finally managed to emerge from my paralysis with a groan and what felt like a ripping away from a membrane that had been strapping me to the bed. The hue of the room changed from a yellowish-green back to clear, sobering, plain midday reality. I got up and stumbled to the front door, still thinking in my days that someone was desperately trying to get an answer. Once outside, I observed nothing but trees, in silence, other than the soft, whooshing bead of water lapping at the shore. When I re-entered, my good friend was sitting at a table, sketching. I asked him if he'd heard the knocking. He hadn't. I grabbed a beer from the fridge and sat down to tell. It? But as I told it, like I'm telling it now, the intensity began to fade, and my enthusiasm toned down as I spoke, almost as if a dial were being twisted from enthused to sheepish. The wedge had been removed, I guess, and each pump of the hydraulic was siphoning the clarity I just had until the door sucked shut again, and I was left uncertain. I shrugged it off, explaining it was just something that happens to me a couple times a year, and there's no way to prove or understand it, so, you know, cheers, I guess. (laughs) The sketch he was working on, that's what really got to me. As I tailed away from my story, he turned the pad so I could see what had blanched his face. The sketch was of the cabin's interior, the view from his seat. At the entrance, a shadow figure stood outside the screen door, faceless, pitch black, and cloaked, absorbing life from the scene in rivulet. Everything on the page was in a murk of greenish-yellow, the color of rot. <laughs> I'm just fucking with you. The sketch was of a UFO. Still creepy, but not as impactful as the version I just invented to wrap up that tale of personal terror. Sometimes a true story needs a dash of fiction to bring it all together and make it uh, cogent. The subject of this episode was a concocter too. Scott Falader was literally an inventor. And like me, he struggled with sleep issues. His of the sleepwalking variety. In that mobile unconsciousness, Scott took care of business. Made food, tidied up, fixed things odd and interesting stuff, if the tasks are harmless enough. Terrifying when a nightmare gets up and begins walking around like it did in the Felator home during the dark hours of January 16th, 1997. Welcome to Dark Topic. I'm your host, Jack Luna. This is episode S2E5, The Inventor. Scott Felater was a modern-day inventor, an engineer. He didn't hide out in a private lair, tinkering with tools and creations, blowing the windows out with an explosion from time to time, like the classic character most imagine. But he did have the bright, intelligent, somewhat wild eyes, the thinning, messy hair, and the glasses. Every time I think inventor, I envision someone who observes the world through thick Coke bottle-like lenses, as if in exchange for their advanced intellect and ability to perceive the pathways to technological solution. They've paid the price of being unable to literally see clearly. Scott had married his high school sweetheart, Yarmila Kleskin, in 1976, after the two had each completed their college education. And for the next 20 years, the Felators seemed to enjoy an ideal life together, buying a home in a suburb of Phoenix, Arizona, and having two children, a boy and a girl, both of which would later describe their home life as happy and without trauma or even tension-disturbing it. Yarmilla was a teacher's aide, and Scott brought home the ham as an electrical engineer for Motorola. He worked long hours and was often exhausted, but still managed to find time to volunteer as a personal and family counselor for his church, of which he was a devout Mormon. The only evidence of there having been some trouble on the home front was the known fact that Scott wanted to have more kids, whereas Yarmilla was done happy with the two they had, along with their beloved golden retriever, of which rounded out the brood nicely, in her opinion. Scott had a history of sleepwalking. The condition had not improved as life wore on, due to the stresses of his job and the lack of sleep that he became accustomed to as a result. Those who suffer from sleepwalking are, for the most part, children. But there are, of course, exceptions, and Scott, who was in his early 40s, was legitimately one of them. This phenomenon usually occurs during the slow-wave sleep stage, which is a state of low consciousness. It can be brought on by a lack of sleep, or simply as a result of being one of the rare people who are predisposed to it. There are countless cases of sleepwalkers having crawled out of bed to perform routine tasks such as cooking, cleaning, handiwork, in rare cases, driving, and in ultra-rare and disputable instances, committing a homicide you've been meaning to get around to. Scott was known to have on at least one occasion attacked someone while sleepwalking. His sister recalled a time when she had come across her brother meandering about their childhood home, and she had tried to wake him. Scott responded by throwing her across the room, a not uncommon reaction for sleepwalkers, as they tend to panic when disturbed from their animated slumber. In 1987, there occurred a particularly fantastic case of what's come to be known as homicidal sleepwalking in Ontario, Canada, near my hometown. It was such a strange and groundbreaking trial that it made worldwide news, and Scott Felator was most assuredly following it in a time where information seemed to come from one spigot. 24-year-old Kenneth Parks had a lot of stress in his life. There were debts, all due to gambling, and recently he'd attempted to cover them by funneling money out of his employer's electrical company to the tune of $30,000, a desperate act of which he was found out and had recently been fired as a result. While watching television on May twenty-fourth, 1987, Kenneth likely had the impending criminal charges on his mind as he slipped into an uneasy sleep. He would wake up 25 kilometers away, covered in blood, hands wrapped around the throat of his distraught father-in-law. The struggle had finally stirred Ken back to full consciousness, and he released his grip, the horror of what he'd done, flooding in. Kenneth Parks, a giant of a man, had allegedly like Frankenstein's monster, come to life from his slumber, piled into his car, drove from his Pickering, Ontario home to that of his in-laws in Scarborough, a city about a 20-minute drive away, took a tire iron, and, still dozing, let himself into the house with a spare key he'd been entrusted with as he was quite close with his in-laws. He then bludgeoned his mother-in-law to death and was in the process of attempting to kill her husband as well when he came to and immediately halted his rampage. Parks then got back into his vehicle and drove straight to the police station, where he turned his blood-soaked self into dumbfounded officers, stating that, quote, I think I've killed some people. My hands. After a circus trial of which Kenneth Parks eventually was found to be not criminally responsible and incredibly set free without any conditions, the defense of murder through sleep was suddenly on the table. And there are many who believe Scott Flader took careful note. A decade following this incredible verdict on a cold night in early January, Scott Filater headed to bed. His wife was in the living room watching ER, a show that may as well have been named uh, George Clooney. (laughs) He bid her goodnight and headed upstairs to turn in, where his children were already fast asleep. It was just after 10 p.m. The next thing Scott claims to remember is waking up to the sound of some commotion outside. He answered the door when the bell rang and came face-to-face with a concerned-looking police officer. Scott asked what the problem was. The officer asked how many people were in the house. Scott replied that there were four, including himself, his two kids, his wife, then allowed a sweep of the home. Soon the search went into the backyard, where a grisly discovery was made. Earlier that evening, Scott had been working on a faulty pump for the pool when his wife had called him in to eat. He left his tools near the task, one of which was a sharp hunting knife that had been doubling as a screwdriver. Scott had been too tired to complete the chore after dinner and had eventually headed off to bed, as we know. At around 11 p.m. that night, a neighbor hears what he initially deduces to be the sounds of lovemaking coming from beyond the fence that separated him and the filleters. After a moment or two, he decides to be sure and takes a peek, maybe loosening his, uh, belt buckle a little as he does so. Huh? I don't know, maybe, right? Seems weird to... Anyways. The scene he takes in is anything but romantic. Yarmilla is laying on the ground in obvious pain, moaning a few feet from the pool. Scott is at the back door, calming their golden retriever, who's been spooked by whatever has happened. He has gloves on, which strikes the neighbor as odd. But what happens next perplexes the peeper as the series of actions carried out by Scott are so casually done that one observing peripherally may have mistaken the scene as featuring a mundane chore being carried out. Scott calmly approaches his injured wife and starts to roll her towards the pool. A moment later, Yarmilla slips into the water and Scott, using a gloved hand, holds her head under. The neighbor has seen enough Being the suburbanite pussy he is, he slowly backs away from the fence and scurries inside to call for help. Your millifilator is found dead and floating in the chummed water of the backyard pool by authorities. Her husband is brought in for questioning where it doesn't take long for Scott to start considering that he may have had a part in her death. He can't remember anything. There soon will be no doubt as to his culpability, but there will be many an attempt to discern whether he should be held responsible for his actions. The trial features a parade of sleep specialists and character witnesses. Scott Philater steadily maintains his ignorance, but the prosecution soon begins to break down the details of Yarmilla's death and the findings of investigators. I've prepared an amalgamation of the versions told in court for you to be the judge. Around 11 p.m., Scott Philater gets up and heads downstairs. He claims he does this unconsciously, and that because the chore of fixing the pump for the pool was left unfinished, he must have gotten up to complete it, in his sleep. Yarmila, who is still downstairs, becomes curious as to what her husband's doing when he wordlessly heads out the back door, so she follows after him. Scott, who's done most of this guesswork for us to this point, is allegedly working away outside, screwing shit together with his hunting knife, when his wife startles him. He then, and this we know for certain, stabs Yarmila 44 times with the knife. Now, either in your mind or if you're not shy, physically, let's try recreating 44 stabs together. Grip that imaginary handle, bring that imaginary knife up, and let's start stabbing. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. She screams out. You cut your hand. She's fighting. 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, 30, 31, 32, 33, 34, 35, 36, 37, 38, 39, 40. One in the chest, another over here by the shoulder. Lots of space left in the midsection. A couple more and 44 stabs. All right. Now, still in autopilot, apparently. Scott heads to the house to calm the dog down something a sleepwalker likely would never have the presence of mind to do. He then cleans his hands and puts on gloves, another eyebrow razor as this indicates forethought. Finally, Scott rolls his wife into the water where he holds her head under. This is when the neighbor, timid Todd, pulls away from the fence. I'm just kidding. I mean, Scott could have turned and came at him, obviously. I like to think it wouldn't be my move to abandon a murder in progress, but who knows in the moment, right? As the police are being called, Scott heads upstairs to change his clothes. He bandages his cut hand, collects all evidence, and puts it in a Tupperware tub, which he places in a garbage bag. Crinkle, crinkle, rustle, rustle, achoo, achoo, achoo. still sleeping. Then he takes the evidence to the garage, where he places it in the wheel well of his vehicle, then slams the trunk shut and heads back to bed. The jury, as you're doing, listens intently to every angle, especially Scott's own testimony, of which comes off to most, including myself, as theatrical and contrived. In the end, they decide that Scott Felater murdered his wife in cold blood. The concealment of the hunting knife and bloody clothes is what did it for them. That was tough to look past for me as well. There was little evidence of a motive, no insurance policy or woman on the side, which certainly caused some pause. But it was presented that Yarmila was not wearing her wedding ring, indicating there could have been problems in the marriage that had been kept under wraps. Philater is sentenced to life in prison. The judge considers imposing the death penalty, but is swayed by Philater's children, who plead for their father's life. As Scott exits the courtroom, he says aloud, quote, This isn't over. Five years later, his final appeal is denied, and he silently heads off to prison where he remains to this day, still maintaining that he has no recollection of murdering his wife. That will do it. A short offering, but no doubt an interesting one. Personally, I believe that Scott Flader did indeed sleep his way to the pool pump where he was startled by his wife. 44 stabs is a little much, but even there, I can give the benefit of the doubt. I cannot, however, nod my head as he drowned Yarmilla with his gloved hand. Yarmilla, by the way, was indeed drowned. An autopsy discovered water in her lungs. She was alive when she went into that water. I definitely can't follow him up the stairs where he changes, then takes steps to hide the evidence. I think he accidentally went ballistic on his wife while sleepwalking, then awoke to discover his actions, and decided to finish her off. Prosecutors hypothesized that Scott had planned for his children to find their mother the next morning, and for the whole thing to look as though an intruder had dragged her outside, stabbed her, then finished the attack in the pool. This sounds... sound to me. Either way, a total shit show. Okay. All right. I'm recording this away from my microphone, so forgive the sound quality. Also, forgive the sound quality of all the episodes you're going to hear today. Um, of the old Dark Topic episodes, people have been asking for. I found them. Uh, so, I'm putting them out. I'm trying to fix them up a bit. Anyways, I have some shout-outs from Patreon that I need to do here. Alicia Jones. Thank you, Alicia. Andrew Young. Thank you, Andrew. Alexa oh there goes uh, my echo. <laughs> Just like uh, I'm echoing probably right now in your ears. Good one. Gabriela Montalongo. Thank you, uh, Gabriela. Todd Rush. Uh, thanks, Todd, for reminding me I need to slow down a little bit here. You guys are very important. Bill Reynolds. Thank you, Billy. And uh, Gil- Gilmero Megana. Wow, those are two names. Gabriela Montalongo and Gilmero Megana. Are you guys married? That makes no sense. Thank you so much for uh, your support. Your high-level support. I would shout everybody out, but there's there's like a 1,000 people because I'm doing really well. <laughs> um, so at the tier 25, I do some shout-outs, which um, definitely has to be worth the additional, what is it, $12? Uh, so there you go. Thanks, guys. <laughs> I try to do a little bit extra for Tier 25, but um, it's just a spot for extra support. So thank you, everybody, who's, who's supporting on Apple Plus as well as on uh, Patreon. When I say Apple Plus, I mean Dark Topic Plus is available through the page uh, the, the Apple Podcast, um, podcast app. And uh, I'm going to stop rambling now and, and continue with the show. What else? No baby yet, um, but any minute. I'm glad I was able to squeeze this episode out before Charlie gets squeezed out. <laughs> I'll be back ASAP. Till next time, eyes cocked, doors locked. Stay parent. Can we talk something else? Can, can we talk about something else? Welcome to Dark Topic. I'm your host, Jack Luna. The Burbs has to be my favorite movie from childhood. A tight-knit, late-80s suburb is turned on its head when a strange brood named the Clopex moves in next to Tom Hanks and family, where they start digging holes in the backyard at 3 a.m. and just generally act creepy as hell. A memorable scene has Hanks and his PJs standing out front of his neighbor's house in the middle of the night, head cocked like a confused dog as electricity pumps in bright spurts from the Klopek's barred basement windows. Hanks is on vacation. A staycation to be accurate, so he's able to dedicate his time investigating the strange happenings there with the help of his quirky neighborhood pals. Unfortunately, in the real world, people usually turn a blind eye to anything out of the ordinary. We're too busy with our own lives to get involved in someone else's. That guy across the street who can be heard yelling at his family around 8 p.m. every night? None of my business. Sure, his kids skitter around like ants in the sun and his wife's always wearing dark glasses, but still, none of my business. There's a fine line between being polite and being a coward, and I think most of us are cowards. The best of us try to be polite when we see something that makes us feel uncomfortable. We might tentatively ask if everything is okay. But we know we're not going to do shit if, if there's a complaint. We'll just try to support the person with a nice word, you know? The worst of us douse apathy on that feeling. We roll our eyes or turn up the volume on our headphones. The brave get involved and usually are ostracized by the whole bunch for doing so. I know I've already spoken about the Greyhound bus beheading that happened so close to where I live, but... That kid, his name was Tim McLean. Tim McLean, I promise you, may have even survived if he was on a bus with people from, say, the 1950s. A generation that had just come from war and had a real sense of pride in their country and community. A bus full of that stock would have rushed to the problem rather than run from it. I spend a lot of time on buses, so if you disagree with me, you clearly haven't been on public transit lately. No one wants to look at anybody. Everybody just wants to get home and the bus drivers themselves are so sick and scared of their customers that they're petitioning for plexiglass to surround them so they can't be assaulted. Here's what I'm talking about, a personal example. A friend a friend of mine's father was driving down the street one day when he saw a man roughing up a woman on the front lawn. He stopped his truck and rushed over, demanding the man to stop. The man stopped, but the woman wasn't too happy about her man being bullied and started yelling, screaming, and scratching at my friend's dad until he retreated to his truck where he yelled out give her one for me before driving away in disbelief and <laughs> disbelief these days it doesn't pay to be a good samaritan you're just funneling whatever the problem is towards yourself and you know you're better off just to stare at your phone screen and you know melt into the uh, the surroundings until you can get home to that bigger screen and lock the doors the more overrun and bleak the neighborhood the more prevalent the disaffection people have for one another is It's abnormal to be friendly in such places. To nod at someone as you pass is risky. You may provoke them into thinking the gesture is hostile, as the norm for interaction between strangers in such places is strictly confrontation. I live in a small town where the only problem I see is the stray cat deal. They're dirty, mangy, and cloudy-eyed cats, but they all seem well-fed and well-mannered. I mean, I just gave one half a honey-glazed donut on my way home from the bakery uh, yesterday. It's like like ancient Egypt right here for these things. But it wasn't too long ago that I lived in an area where I'd routinely get into altercations with rude bus patrons or pushy homeless people. I was even robbed at a bus stop on a busy street in front of about 50 people who in unison turned toward my assailant as I yelled out, then immediately turned away when they got the gist of what was happening. Pulled my wallet out to check for change for some bum and he snatched it from me. Pulled the 20 bucks he'd seen in there out and then tossed my wallet in the street forcing me to retrieve it before giving chase. I'm still impressed by his plan and his cardio. He had to be in his 50s, and I chased him for about, I don't know, five to ten, five, probably five minutes. But he just kept chugging along about 40 yards in front of me up a main street. I finally gave up when he headed down a trail and into the woods. I didn't risk following him to some shanty town where, in my mind, it would have been gang-raped and then cannibalized. Here in that twenty. I even saw him later on while waiting at the same bus stop. He asked me for change again, and I tried to tell him that he'd already, you know, he'd already got me for the yearly subscription, but he didn't remember. A little while after this, I watched another bum beat the hell out of him while at the same bus stop. We were in a terminal where the acoustics rang the smacks from the punches wetly around the concrete walls, stirring up pigeons and compelling me to exit and have a smoke out in the wind, as I didn't want to be a witness to what looked and sounded to be a murder in progress. It's Oshawa, Ontario. the city slogan, I'm not sure if it's still this, but at the time it was, quote, Oshawa, prepare to be amazed. (laughs) Anyway, what's my point? I guess it's the, um, I guess it's that the more people there are in an area, the less likely they are to look out for one another, as it's just too much going on and it's safer just to mind your own business. Throw in a high crime rate, and you've got yourself a blind-eyed, uh, a blind-eyed community with a neighborhood I don't want to watch. Program of which everyone volunteers. The monster featured in this podcast took full advantage of his shitty neighborhood and the apathy that most certainly permeated all that surrounded his house. episode five. Gary Heidnick and his House of Horrors Part 1 Gary Heidnick doesn't deserve a whole lot of preamble. If I were at a party and at some point found myself holding court, I might think to say something inappropriate about how now that I had a captive audience, I'm reminded of Gary Heidnick and his House of Horrors. Want to hear about it? Said audience would of course beg for more, and I'd go on to quickly hit them with the gory details of Heidnick's crimes. In uh, podcast form, I have the luxury of an audience who actually wants to know the whole story. I'll aim for the middle. Somewhere between enough and too much. Forgive me if I sound a little gun-shy. I recently was pulled from a bar while explaining the crimes of BTK to a group of senior citizens. They asked what I was up to lately, and one thing led to another. I was actually called a twat by some mushmouth English guy. That means, that means pussy, right? Twat means pussy, right? Call me a dumb twat. Anyways, I, I lost it a little, and now I can't go back for a bit, so it's good to be here. <laughs> uh, speaking openly to people who I know can handle it, and if they can't, they just boop off the episode. No death threats or work-worn hands on my shoulders. Man, he's, let's get paranoid. All right. Gary Heidnik's parents split up when he was two. His mother citing gross neglected duty and his father countering that she was a wild woman and a boozer. Gary lived with his mother until school began. He and his brother were shipped back to this time to his father and his, uh, their now stepmother. As their own mother, apparently was what the father had claimed. Unfortunately, uh, Gary's father was what his mother had claimed as well. When Gary would wet the bed in typical budding, homicidal, psychopathic fashion, his father would hang the soiled sheets out their apartment window for the neighborhood to see. When Gary misbehaved, his father would hang him out the window by his ankles, 20 feet above the ground, for all the neighborhood to see. Gary and his brother were once sent to school with eyes painted on their asses, their father's idea of a joke. Gary Heidnik hit another classic future serial killer milestone when he fell from a tree in grade school and landed directly on the crown of his head. The fall was so impactful that his melon was forever misshapen by the accident. Fellow classmates actually dubbed him Football Head as a result. Once Gary reached an age where he could make a decision to affect his life, he promptly joined the army and was sent off to Germany, where he served as a medic. He never looked back. Gary took some LSD at one point and had a bad trip, apparently. He ended up in a military hospital and underwent psychological evaluation. Recognizing an opportunity to cash in, Heineck played up the symptoms. He displayed while totally tripping out, man, and was soon diagnosed as having schizoid personality disorder. Not long after this, he was given an honorary discharge with 100% disability benefits. Heineck was back in the States and taken care of financially to a degree. His mother soon committed suicide. Um, It's unclear how this affected him, but soon after her death, he applied for and Successfully started up a church called the United Church of the Ministers of God. It's a sick band name. Heidnik anointed himself bishop, and there's a photo of him posing as such uh, that makes me laugh a little just thinking about it. He's <laughs> He's got his eyes lowered humbly and appears to be uh, in deep thought, maybe thinking about how sweet his mustache is. I'll put it on my uh, social media for you to check out. Heidnik endeared himself to the local mentally disabled community. He managed to accrue around 50 members and between the church and his military stipend started to get a little change accumulating. He looked to the stock market and uh, wisely invested in Playboy in the mid-70s. As his money grew, so did his actual mental illness. In 1978, Heidnick signed his then-girlfriend's mentally disabled sister out of a psychiatric facility and brought her back to his place. He raped her in every imaginable way and then... Uh, held her captive in a storage bin for future use, like a sex doll. Heinick was soon found out and arrested. He'd uh, signed the girl out, after all. For the incident, he spent three years in a a mental institution, uh, rarely speaking. Although when he did, he did infamously. uh, At a parole hearing, he wrote on a piece of paper to his lawyer when the judge asked him a question, uh, quote, The devil put a cookie in my throat. We pick up five years after his release from this mental institution. On November 25th, 1986, the night before Thanksgiving at around 11 p.m., a hucker paces the sidewalk of a Philadelphia slum, hoping to catch a quick trick, if only at this point to warm up. Josefina Rivera, a 25-year-old Puerto Rican black hustler, whips her wig at every slow-moving car and flashes her sharp features under the glow of the street lamps, willing a vehicle to stop and whistle her over. A Practically new Cadillac soon does just this, and Josefina approaches. She observes a dark-haired man with piercing eyes and a strong jaw. He has a glistening watch on his wrist. Josefina jumps in without much pretense. The driver... Gary Heidnick pulls the vehicle away from the curb and begins the cruise. Heidnick soon uh, pulls into a McDonald's parking lot and gets out. Josephina follows the odd stranger into the restaurant and he wears a coffee for himself. The date's apparently Dutch. Josephina sits across from her John without an order and begins to uh, attempt small talk. Heidnick's distracted. He ignores the woman, only offering his name when she asks. Josephina realizes under the harsh fluorescent glow of, of the lights in the, in the McDonald's restaurant that this man who calls himself Gary is no Richard Gear, despite his potential with the full head of hair, new caddy, and what she now recognizes as a Rolex watch on his wrist. Gary Heineck is the definition of rough around the edges. His hair is combed back and stays in place, but not with product. Rather, his, his own his own oils. The jeans he wears are grease-stained and dirty. His jacket is dated and made of some cheap cowhide. It has tassels along the arms and is worn out in spots, causing it to reflect the fluorescence. He's a disheveled mess, and as he drinks his coffee, his eyes dart everywhere. Finally, he stands up and says, Let's go. Where are we going? Rivera asks. To my house. This is unusual for Josefina. She usually prefers to take care of business quick, like you know, in the car, but they're now a ways from her territory and this man seems finicky. She doesn't want to risk being stranded out in the now drizzly weather. The two exit the McDonald's and hop in the Cadillac and are soon racing through the Philly slum. Hynek drives the caddy like it's a go-kart, one foot on the gas, the other on the brake, pumping between the two as he navigates around the occasional burned-out hulk of an abandoned vehicle or one of the many craterous potholes the city hasn't gotten around to fixing just yet. As they uh, maneuver deeper into the north end, Josephina recognizes where they are. This section is known as the O.K. Corral, named as such after a shoot-up between rival uh, drug lords a few years back. Hooded men glance up as the Cadillac passes them, their faces lit by cigarette ember. Some proudly display patches on their jackets that advertise this area as said moniker. When they reach North Marshall Street, Heineck eases up on the pace he'd been pushing. They pull into one of the rare driveways on the street of mostly row houses and approach number 3520, that's set further back than the surrounding dwellings. Josefina takes in the trash-littered lawn and notices that the back section is adorned with barbed wire. They pull into the garage that Heinick has recently semi bulletproofed with with uh, metal sheeting. Some thug had shot a stray bullet into his former Cadillac and he didn't want the same to happen to the 71 Rolls-Royce he had in there or his current vehicle. The two exit and head to the house. Heineck pulls out a strange nub of metal and Josefina asks what it is. It's a key, Heineck explains. The other half sawed off in the lock. This way I have the only possible key. Get it? Heineck opens the door and Josephina Rivera, a.k.a. Nicole, checks into the Heineck hotel. Unbeknownst to her, it'll be another four months before she breaks the front door's threshold again. Gary Heidnik's house reflects his mindset. It's in total disarray. Pennies have been glued all over one wall, and five and one dollar bills paper another. A tired-looking old orange couch is slumped under a barred window. Josephina takes in the movie collection that surrounds a TV opposite the sad sofa. Heineck's tastes seem to be limited within the genres of porno, horror, and cheeseball comedy. You know, movies like Splash. (laughs) You know, Airplane. Noticing the girl's interest, Heineck asks if she would like to watch a movie perchance. Josephina looks up confused. Uh, No, she says. She'd rather just get on with what they're here to do. Heineck shoots her a dagger of a look, and Josephina quickly softens the mood by explaining that she needs to get back to her three kids. This isn't entirely true. She does have three kids, but they're not in her care at the moment. Clearly. Heidnik shrugs the whole thing off and gestures and for Josephina to head upstairs with him. I'm going to keep calling her Josefina throughout here. Uh, just keep in mind she's known as Nicole to Heidnik and her future uh, fellow prisoners i gotta respect josephina's real name she's the in my mind the real star of this podcast albeit controversially once they're in heidnik's room josephina requests payment up front heidnik produces a rumpled 20 and they consummate the deal on his floor mattress when finished josephine begins to dress she pulls on her shirt and as her head emerges from the neck hole Hands seize her throat and begin to squeeze. Heineck bears down on the girl and strangles her close to unconsciousness, close to death. He finally lets up a bit, and Josephina begs for her life. Will you do as I say? Heineck asks Yes, she replies. josephina's hands are are then cuffed behind her back, and she's dragged out of the room. Heineck pauses to retrieve his filthy twenty dollar bill that had been sitting on the dresser, waiting for. Josephina to finish and, and then he thumps the helpless young woman down the stairs on through the kitchen and into the cellar where josefina realizes this shit is about to get real her uh, her bare feet hit cold concrete at the bottom of the stairs and she surveys the musty room that's lit by a single bulb heinick sits Josephina on a dirty old mattress and drags a heavy chain over He then takes to fastening a muffler clamp around her tiny ankle and then feeds a chain through it. Hynek wraps the chain around an exposed water pipe in the ceiling and completes the task of securing the now dumbfounded young woman. Gary Hynek appraises his handiwork, then calmly takes to what my son calls crafting. He pulls out some super glue with a tiny brush and starts applying adhesive to the bolts, securing the clamp around Josephina's ankle. He then pulls out a hairdryer and almost serenely waves it over the wet glue until it dries. Once he's satisfied, Heinick lays down on the mattress, sets his head on Josephina's bare lap, and falls asleep. Josephina stares in disbelief around the room. She looks down at the greasy head of hair in her lap and easily resists running her hair th- hand through it. She notices a hole in the concrete nearby but doesn't think much of it. She's too distracted by the tightly clamped makeshift manacles secured about her ankle and the sinking realization that she's fucked. Street-smart, quick-witted girls like Josephina are accustomed to juggling multiple outs in their minds. But for the first time in her life, this young hustler likely sees nothing but emptiness and despair in her mind's eye. Eventually, she too simply falls asleep. Josephina wakes up from a bad dream and re-enters a nightmare. Heidnik is gone, her only company, a uh, old pool table and a washer-dryer, a hulking freezer in the corner, stare at her from their positions, seeming to question why she's down here. She looks down at her already gnawed ankle and attempts, without success, adjusting the muffler clamp to a more comfortable position. She soon hears the cellar door being fumbled with, then opening. Heidnik clomps down the stairs. He's led by a plate bearing a Thanksgiving Day breakfast of egg salad sandwich. When he offers it to his captive, Josephina turns her nose up. She's worried it may be poisoned. Hynek offers some OJ. This too, she shakes away skeptically. Hynek shrugs, suit yourself. He then takes to deepening and widening the hole that's below the broken concrete with a shovel. Josephina looks on. She holds her knees to her chest, trying to stay warm. It's worth reiterating that she's naked, save a t-shirt. As Heidnik digs, he begins sharing his thoughts out loud. He plans on eventually having a commune on a farm, consisting of ten wives and untold numbers of children. Society owes him that, he says. They took his previous kids, and if he has more legally, they'll do it again. What he had to do is set up his own system with his own rules. And it starts here and now. Heidnik, tired of digging, makes his way over to Josephina, where he pulls out his penis and demands she open her mouth. After a few minutes of fellatio, he switches things up and rapes her vaginally until he's finished. The plan is to impregnate, after all. Heidnik picks up the untouched food and drink, then, satisfied, tired, heads back upstairs. As soon as she hears Heidnik close the cellar door, Josefina begins to explore the limits of her chain. The thing is long. She's able to walk to a boarded window and begin testing the strength of the nails that hold it. In short order, she's got the board down and is out the window. She crawls as far out into the backyard as she can and begins screaming for help. She screams in English for a long while, then desperately switches to Spanish. She hollers into the cold, echoing darkness of the Philly slum until she's hoarse. She screams so long and hard that eventually the moon itself looks down and shakes its head in pity. Finally, somebody hears her distress calls and uh, alerted to the cries for help, a man immediately jumps into action and explodes at his front door. His name is... his name's Gary (laughs) Heidnik. I'm sorry, That's, that's not funny. I should be laughing at that. I shouldn't have wrote that. Heidnik attempts to shove Josephina back through the window, but she's wisely gone limp, and it's likely you know, like trying to get toothpaste back into a tube. He heads back inside and bounds down the basement stairs where he grabs the chain and begins reeling Josephina in like she's like she's sideways well water. Oh my god, I should have proofread this. Jesus, nice simile. Should have been more like a marlin or a tuna, right? Sideways well water. Anyways, he yanks her back in and forces her uh, back through the hole, getting a leg in first and, you know, the rest follows. After this struggle, um, Heineck distributes a wild beating on Josephina. He tosses her into the not-quite-ready hole in the floor once he's tired of smashing her with his fists and attempts to slam the plywood lid down over her. The hole's too small and Josephina's head isn't allowing the board to lay flush. High Nick yanks the girl out by her hair and begins beating her with a metal rod. Uh, he then forces her back in and presses her head between her legs, which affords enough room for a, for a moment, and then he uses that moment to slam the board down, finally solving the puzzle of fitting Josephina into the hole. He begins tossing hundreds of pounds worth of sandbags on top. Josephina Rivera screams for a while, but soon realizes she needs to control her breathing and conserve her energy. She has asthma and could easily begin to panic if she doesn't chill the fuck out. She stops struggling and eventually finds a half-comfortable position in the dirt. Rosetta Stone, everybody. You know, for a long time, I've been wanting to go to Japan, but the thing holding me back is that I'm intimidated by the language and that's why i've been going pretty hard at the rosetta stone service i want to be able to take my girl to japan a place that she's always wanted to go and suddenly just start speaking fluent japanese at the restaurant that's my goal (laughs) rosetta stone is the most trusted language learning program available on a desktop or as an app and it truly immerses you in the language you want to learn it's been a trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users 25 languages offered It's fast language acquisition. Rosetta Stone immerses you in a bunch of ways. Uh, There's an intuitive process where you pick up the language naturally, first with words and phrases, then sentences. They have the speech recognition feature. Built-in true accent gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Uh, It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. It's convenient and it's an amazing value especially with this offer here. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Dark Topic listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off on limited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. All right, everybody, Badlands Food. I've been thinking about getting a dog. With my little family, we're about to introduce a dog, I believe, at some point here. And I have a interest in how we're going to be treating said dog. And it occurs to me, you know, that many dogs suffer from health issues. And with Badlands Food, actress Katherine Heigl, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation says she's seeing more issues with dogs' joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health. She's looking at their food. What she discovered is that the way many dog foods are made can actually create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health, and this is true even for many premium brands. Fortunately, she found that by just adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw huge transformations in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step step how anyone could do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. It caught my attention, and as I'm about to uh, get a dog, I think that I'm going to uh, use this service, so I thought I'd share it with the audience as well. Uh, I know many of you have dogs. If you want to keep your dog healthy and happy, go to badlandsfood.com slash darktopic. And watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D.com slash topic to check it out. Badlandsfood.com Heidnik brings down a radio and uh, cranks it to full volume. He then goes about sandbagging the window Nicole had escaped from and shortens her chain. He does a little bit of soundproofing. And uh, from this point forward, he decides he'll blast music all day and night to drown out the screams of of his prisoner and future prisoners. He switches on a broken TV upstairs and cranks the static. Gary Heidnik's home has just begun its true transformation into a house of horrors. Satisfied, he heads upstairs and sleeps soundly. Josephina tries to pull warmth from the dirt surrounding her. The blasting radio nearby informs her of every 15 minutes she spends in the hole. It'll be 27 hours before she sees light again, and even then it'll be from the dim bulb. It'll also be shouted by two figures, one Heidnik and the other, Josefina's new cellmate, cellermate. Josephina could hear two people bickering up above her, where she laid uh, cramped, beyond comprehension. She listened as Gary worked to assure somebody that all was well. She heard him say things like, Come on, Sandy, you know me. You know I would never hurt you. Come on, stop crying. She could also hear the rattle of chains and the now familiar sound of muffler clamps being tightened around an ankle, then hair-dried to set the super glue on the bolts. The stuff that sticks your fingers. Finally, the sandbags were removed from the board above her, and the makeshift coffin lid was lifted. Hydenick, ripped Josephina out by her hair and began introducing her to Sandra Lindsay. Josephina could barely stand, let alone see through her light-blasted, dehydrated eyes, who Heidnik was attempting to introduce to her as if they were at a, at a party. Heidnik threw down some crackers and water for Nicole, who he thought of as Nicole, for Josephina, then proceeded to rape his newest houseguest in front of her. Not that, not that this was shocking to Josephina. If anything, she dozily took it in like a like a fat American sitcom star reading a magazine in a toilet scene. Twenty-seven hours, Josephina had spent in there. Now crackers, water, and social interaction. Sweet. This was this was sweet relief. I'm a uh, I'm a little worried about spreading misinformation with this case. With all the, everything that I that I do, I'm I'm worried about that. Um, it's incredible how many articles or true crime books exaggerate an already outlandish situation um i guess what it is is when it comes to true crime there's there's the story itself and then you know it's the spin that people can put on it to to make it entertaining or make it compelling uh which is clearly i guess what i'm trying to do as well but i i don't want to exaggerate anything jesus i'll 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 do what i can to to pay respect to the people who are who are involved or or to to really try to put across how you know how crazy these situations are and how how evil these these men or women are that uh, create these situations. But okay, so after Heinic rapes his uh, newest captive, he rapes Josephine as well for good measure. Um, we're trying to make some babies here after all. No slack, no slacking people. Oh, no. Okay, no more, no more jokes. Heinic heads up to beds. He uh, may have put Sandra in the hole, as was the eventual custom with his new ladies, but. For Sandy's sake, we'll say he left her shackled on the bed with Josephina, which is what I've read. Uh, Josephina learned that night that Sandra was mentally disabled and had met Gary while attending his church. Gary and another man had, uh, had sex with Sandra on occasion, and at some point she'd become pregnant by Heidnik. Sandra's parents arranged for her to have an abortion, and when Heidnik found out, he was furious. Now she was down here in the basement. And she wondered aloud to uh, Josephina why Gary was being so mean. Josephina sighed and told her um, she wasn't sure. They huddled together, both half naked, dirty, and in need of nourishment. Eventually, under the glow of the lone light bulb and to the sound of the blasting radio, they both fall asleep. The next morning, Sandra Lindsay's concerned mother and family begin pounding on Heidnik's door, certain that he has her in there. They're aware of the recent abortion and Heinick's dumbass ministry. To them, all signs point to Heidnik when Sandra doesn't come home. Heinick ignores the incessant knocking and heads down to the cellar with a pad, a paper, and, and a pen. He forces Sandra Lindsay to write, quote, Dear Mom, do not worry. I will call. Heinick makes Sandra press her fingerprints all over the note, then carefully takes the paper upstairs. Josefina Rivera knows what's up. When Sandra Lindsay asks why Gary made her do that, Josefina says she's gonna—he's gonna mail that to your family. Heinick drives to New York and mails the letter from there, so as to give the impression that Sandra's on the run. Sandra's mother soon receives it and contacts police the call only confirms for authorities that Sandra is a runaway even though she's clearly not the type to just bus off to New York one night and shed her social security checks police drop their interest Sandra's family continues to pound intermittently at hiding door he just turns up the music and avoids shadowing the fish hole in the door he sends another heavily fingerprinted letter letter from Sandra at Christmas a $5 bill is enclosed for some reason. Like, Hey man, don't worry about me. I got five bucks. I got five bucks to swear. I'll just, um, I'll just skip over a thousand dark details here because I don't know them for certain. It's, it's more of the same from, from what I can glean over the next month. Hynek feeds his two prisoners, uh, hot chocolate and maybe a pop tart or on the rare occasion, some oatmeal for breakfast. Then, um, no lunch. Usually, uh, brings down a couple of hot dogs for dinner, he's he's pretty keen on stuffing both of them into the hole from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. Of course, uh, Heidnik rapes his prisoners daily, orally, anally, vaginally, always in the end vaginally. The end game's this uh, this big happy family he wants to create after all. Sandra's mother is finally able to convince police to check in on Heidnik. A disinterested officer is sent to dig at the perceived dead lead, but he's greeted with only the mute noise of a blasted radio playing behind Heidnik's door when he goes to knock. This officer then follows up with his secondary tip. He heads to the Elwin Institute, uh, which is uh, an institute for for the neighborhoods, you know, the local people with disabilities, Um, and he wants to speak to people familiar with Heidnik's uh, relationship with Sandra Lindsay. If I haven't, uh, well, I just did mention it. Elwin, yeah, it's a service center for the mentally disabled uh, within the Philly slum. He- Heidnik knows the clientele there very well. It's where he drummed up business for his ministry. Anyways, the uh, the officer finds the man who is a direct link between Sandra and Heidnick. He's the man who was having sex with Sandra as well. They were, I don't know, teaming up on her. He asked the man a few questions to which this man tries to answer as best as he can and the, and the investigator asks the man how to spell Heidnik, so he can look and look him up on his you know his computer machine this is 1980 1986 so the man tries to spell Heidnik. you tr- so you try to spell Heidnik in your head right now what do you think h i mean i've been looking at this guy for you know for weeks and i'm having trouble spelling his name right now at the moment it goes H, and then it's either I or E, right? I think it's I. All right, okay. His murderpedia is right here. It's it's E, so it's H E, and then the I D. Now what? How do you spell Nick? Right? Should be easy. Anyways, N I K. So you, you get the point. Um, this this mentally disabled man who, who this guy's asking you know him, him to him to spell Hide Nick's last name. Uh, goes with H E I D A I K E, which isn't bad. You know, really, I mean, I'm confused too clearly, but anyways, the cop types this in and the search yields no result. Uh, apparently Gary Hidaki doesn't have any priors. The case goes into the shredder, uh, not even, it just goes under the, the drippy coffee maker. But if they had got the name right, which honestly would have only taken a search of North Marshall Street for any Garys in the neighborhood, um, and had he done that, this rookie would have probably fast-tracked his career the correctly spelled gary heidnik name would have yielded an arrest record of a man who kidnapped raped and imprisoned a black female less than a decade ago a conviction which matches up pretty well with the accusations currently being thrown at the mystery man living at 3520 north marshall 22nd 1986 three days before christmas heineck is spending his afternoon cruising philly's mean streets looking to add a third girl to his collection he soon finds just what he's looking for 19 year old lisa thomas walks alone heineck slowly pulls his cadillac up beside her and rolls down his window he calls out to her hey you like to see my peter lisa reacts with disgust Heidnik has mistaken her for a prostitute and quickly changes his approach. He apologizes and offers the young girl a ride. His tone takes on some charm and he offers to treat her for lunch. Lisa is tempted. A uh, free lunch would be great. She's been living in near poverty with her young child and mother getting by on welfare. She admires the car and gives Nick a ride look. I guess that'd be all right she hops in, and as promised, Heidnick takes her to lunch. They sit down at a TGI Friday's where Lisa gets herself a burger and fries. Heidnik lays it on thick. He tells the girl how pretty she is and asks if she'll come with him to Atlantic City the next day. Lisa tells him she has nothing to wear. Well, we'll take care of that right away, Heidnik vows. When they finish eating, Heidnik takes the girl clothes shopping at Uh, at Sears then suggests that they head back to his place for some drinks Lisa by this point is taken by the strange man she's enjoying his company and the attention he's showering her with little does she know that as she walks through Gary's strange house and takes a seat on his orange sofa two girls huddle together in a pit beneath her, dreaming of the chance to have an actual shower someday again after a couple of wine coolers Lisa dozes off. The information I have is that she'd taken an allergy pill, and when the alcohol hit, it caused her to pass out. Uh, Regardless, I'd be interested to know what kind of allergy pill she took, As you know, I regularly take down 8 to 10 macros on summer nights while dosed up on reactant or claritin. You know, not sponsored. Um, And I've never experienced the blow dart to the next style conk out Lisa must have. I mean, Heidnik had her stripped and up to his room by the time she she comes to. Making me think he, he dosed her, right? But there's no information saying he dosed her. It's just an allergy pill and a wine cooler, I guess. The two have sex, and when they're done, Lisa asks for a ride home. Heideck responds by choking Lisa to the brink of unconsciousness. And then in the same manner he got Josephina to comply, he releases and lets her beg for her life. Investigators later referred to this ritual as the Heidnik Maneuver. Cute. Lisa promises to do as she's told, and Heidnik slaps a cuff on her wrist, and drags her downstairs to meet the others. When they reach the cellar, Lisa begins to freak out. She's convinced that Heidnik has bodies uh, in the white bag she sees piled in the corner. Heidnik assures the girl that that's not the case. He takes to shackling her, and then... To ease her concerns, shows her that the bags are just sandbags. Nothing to worry about. He um, starts unpiling the bags, and lifts the board that lays underneath them. And two naked, well half-naked, half-starved girls pop out as soon as he does so. Lisa shouts out in surprise and horror, What the fuck is going on down here? Heineck introduces the girls to their newest cellar mate. He then makes Lisa kiss his ass. Literally. Um, and then he asks her, who's the boss? She tells him. It's him, clearly. Then Gary forces her to perform oral sex in front of the others, all the while asking each of them, who's the boss? He then rapes Lisa, as is always his custom. Once done with this show of dominance, Hynek sits down with his, his girls and makes some PB&J sandwiches then hands them out. Sandra and Josefina wolf the offering down. Lisa isn't hungry. Yet. Heidnik looks around the room and makes a mental note that he'll need to widen the hole as he stuffs a peanut butter jelly sandwich down his throat. He also decides to screw a hook into one of the beams in the ceiling so that he can hang any misbehaving girls from it by their wrist as punishment. He then... Stuffs a screaming, begging Lisa Thomas into the hole and slams the lid down and sandbags it. This all bothers me, clear I mean, come on. But uh one of these girls, I'm not sure if it's Lisa Thomas, later in life, um, admitted or her family I saw an interview, I I'm not sure if it's Lisa, it might be another girl. But uh there her son's interviewed and he talks about how, um, sometimes she'll like relapse and be in a corner, um, saying, I'll kill you, Gary Heidnik. You know, she's still suffering from these, these memories. Um, you know, developed like a multiple personality situation. It's really fucked up. Anyways, stuffs her, stuffs Lisa into the hole and slams the lid down and sandbags the top. The other two can have the mattress for now. Uh, Heidnik is developing a system New girls go directly into the hole. If somebody misbehaves, they go in the hole. Girls at the lowest rung not only spend more time in the hole, they also get fed less. In Heidnik's cellar, the mattress was a spot of honor. He adds a plastic blow-up mattress for captives on the way up in his good books. Heidnik forces the girls to beat each other to keep the group from bonding too close and possibly uprising. He starves the group for days, then comes down with a special treat like a barrel of fried chicken. He'll, uh in these cases, announce to his ravenous harem that whoever best pleases him sexually gets to eat. The girls would fall over themselves to get at the smug asshole, uh desperate to win some food. Josephina Rivera was Heidnik's prize girl. She'd been there for the longest and had been zero trouble since trying to escape it in the backyard. He often put her in charge of the others and can trust her to tell him if anyone was misbehaving. Misbehaving might mean crying or complaining too much or making noise when he was out of the house or just speaking ill of him. He'd give everyone a turn at being in charge and... uh if when he came back, they didn't report something, Hynek would beat the girl for lying to him. And more often than not, attach her arm to the ceiling where she'd be forced to stand tiptoed for hours. Her arm raised above her head. The height of the ceiling was about seven feet. Most of these girls, you know, they're tiny girls. He'd adjust it so that just their tiptoes would be there on the floor and leave them there for hours. The hole the whole he had, Doug, was sweet relief in comparison to this new method of torture. In January of the new year, 1987, 10 days after acquiring his third woman, Lisa Thomas, Heidnick sets off to find another. Gary Heidnick had many nicknames, one of them being People Collector. Lady Collector has a nicer ring in my opinion, but, you know, let's not glorify this shit. Deborah Johnson Dudley entered the fray in much the same way as the others. She matched the other girls in that she was young, you know, 23 years old and was of African-American descent. All of Hydenick's victims were at least partially black. Heidnick believed that he had African roots, although his features were those of an all-out white guy. Regardless, he had preferences when it came to the opposite sex, and his extensive porno collection reflected that. Not to mention his uh, growing lady collection in the cellar. Deborah Dudley proved to be a big problem for Hydenick, and for the entire group as a result. She fought like hell from the get-go. It didn't matter how long she'd be punished or how hard High Nick or another of the girls beat her. Dudley would just not behave. Uh, in an interview I watched that Josephina Rivera gave, soon after she escaped, spoiler alert, the um, the, in my opinion, extremely impressive Rivera explains what it was like when Dudley entered the cellar. The three others had adjusted to Heidnik at this point and were all quite good at keeping their heads down and not pissing him off. They were all so compliant, in fact, that Heidnick was left to basically make things up to justify his sadistic punishments. Dudley, on the other hand, was wild. She, um, th- I mean, the others had to beg her to, to stop screaming or yelling or breaking whatever she get her hands on because those outbursts would guarantee, you know, they were guaranteed to send Heidnik into a rage if he heard them and they'd all bear the brunt of his wrath. Do you uh like if you remember having teachers when you were a kid who would punish the whole class as a result of one kid's behavior? Uh Heidnick was that style of disciplinarian and Deborah Dudley was most certainly that kid. The um the other captives resented her wholeheartedly for not getting with the program and when Heidnik ordered one of them to punish Dudley, there were no questions from the overlooking Heidnick as to whether they were being forceful or enthusiastic enough while administering said beating. Despite Despite the disharmony, Heidnik continued to widen the hole in the basement in preparation for more guests. This hole, um, the concrete stayed broken about the same. It would be, you know, the size of like a well, if you've ever seen a well, I'm sure you have. Um, but underneath, he was widening the hole. So you go into it and there'd be space, you know, underneath the concrete to stuff people into. The fact that he was looking for another girl proves that he's clearly out of his mind at this point i mean i can barely handle one of my right fellas (laughs) okay there's more jokes huh sorry this is not funny on january 18th heidnik swipes 18 year old jacqueline askins off the street with ease as she's hooking and when she enters a dodge van that heidnik affectionately calls bugs bunny due to its full uh fur interior there there are no witnesses to to this interaction askins is a tiny demure young woman who despite her outward appearance had the fortitude to take on life as a street prostitute in on the mean streets of philadelphia her uh, her insides matched her outside pretty quickly though once Heidnik maneuvers once the hidenick maneuver had been applied to her she um soon found herself standing naked in the cellar petrified and desperately trying to make sense of her predicament in Josefina Rivera's eyes, her future, her future's bleakness was reflected. Although those eyes quickly brightened when Heinrich produced the cake and set it down for the girls to have at with their hands, it was uh, Josefina's birthday on this day. And besides this reason for celebration, Heinrich was in good spirits due to his newest acquisition. He also believed that Josefina and Sandra were now pregnant. He allowed the girls to choose what they wanted from a Chinese food takeout menu to boot and everyone was elated, uh, except Askins, of course, who took in the macabre birthday party in disbelief as her ankle was fitted with a manacle. Her ankle proved to be too tiny for the muffler clamps, so Heidnik frustratedly slapped a handcuff on it instead while the other uh, four women huddled over a menu licking cake from their fingers. Heidnik proceeded to rape his newest captive as the others looked on distractedly then tossed her into the hole. It was a great day. He uh, he was very happy as he piled the sandbags over the terrified screaming girl's living grave and then collected the Chinese food orders from his bright-eyed brood. Hydenic smiled to himself as he bounded back up the stairs with the orders. This just might work out after all, he thought Time to just cut off this, the world outside, and, and whoever's holding you captive, the same person. After a period of time, you're going to grow to like him, and regardless, because he's your only contact to, to things that are outside, or he and he's your only he's your only source of survival. And over a period of time, psychologically, you notice, know you know, he, you know that this is the person that's got to bring you bread and water, and. and things like that, so it just became he just created his own little world in his basement and everybody just kind of pretty much dealt with it, I guess, in their own way. February arrived and with it, the first harbinger that Heidnik wasn't going to be able to maintain his little situation in the basement. Sandra Lindsay's uh, family had yet to give up on their belief that Heidnik had Sandra. They continued to intermittently bang at the door of 3520 North Marshall, but to no avail. Sandra, by this point, had endured two months plus of torture and numbing terror. It was her misfortune to catch the brunt of Heinick's mounting frustration that none of the girls were yet impregnated. Apparently, what happened was Sandra resisted against the board being put over her after being forced into the hole. heineck became enraged at this and yanked Sandra out, beat her with the end of a shovel. Uh, I've yet to mention this form of beating. Unfortunately, he used the end of a, the end of a shovel a lot. Then attached a uh, cuff to her arm and locked the poor girl to the ceiling ring he installed in the ceiling. This punishment was considered by the girls to be worse than the beatings, rapes, or spending time in the hole. Usually it would last a few hours. Hynek would hang the girls so that their feet would just touch the floor, forcing them to stand on their toes and endure a constant stretching. Sandra was forced to stand this way, with one arm cuffed to the ceiling and on her tiptoes, for days, for some reason. At some point, Sandra began to helplessly hang from her wrist and wasn't taking in food. The others begged her to stand up. They knew Hynek would beat her if he saw her resting somewhat, even though the weight in her arm must have been excruciating. Everyone in the basement was very worried about Sandra, uh, but didn't dare ask Hynek to uncover her, as that would almost guarantee their own turn hanging from the ceiling. Heinick began force-feeding Sandra, stuffing bread in her mouth and holding his hand over her face and beating her till she swallowed. He believed she was pregnant, so she needed to stay nourished. It's just horrendous. Eventually, after a particularly brutal meal, Sandra slumped and fell oddly still. Josephina, Heinick's most trusted girl, his first started telling Heineck that Sandra looks like she's dead. Heineck didn't believe it, but after beating and yelling at Sandra a bit, he became concerned enough to take out his cuff key and finally unlocked the girl's arm. He let her fall to the floor where she toppled over and smacked her head on the edge of the hole. Still not convinced, Heineck checked her pulse. Sandra Lindsay had finally been released from the House of Horrors. Heidnik responded almost casually to the death, telling Josephina, You're right. She's dead. He did begin to get a little anxious as he considered how to get rid of the body. He realized he couldn't risk dumping it somewhere since its discovery would lead police directly to the to his door. Um, so Heidnick disappeared upstairs and returned with some... Sharp instruments, he ordered a couple girls to help him dismember the body. Heinrich cut the head off, much to everyone's horror. He forced the others to saw off the legs and arms in some twisted exercise of attempting to make the girls feel culpable in some way. Heinrich then brought the head upstairs and soon returned to lug the torso up too. He wrapped the limbs and put them in the freezer. He then returned upstairs and pretty soon the remaining four girls began to smell a stench unlike any of them had ever experienced. Gary Heineck had put the head in a pot and was boiling it down. Most of the torso he had cooking in the stove. The smell was incredibly bad. It began to do something that the captives downstairs all longed to do. He escaped the house starting alarming the neighborhood. A concerned neighbor called the police. People were beginning to suspect that the bishop had died and was decomposing. I call on the bishop because throughout this entire ordeal, Hynek was still holding church ceremonies, sometimes in his house even. An officer arrived and as usual got no answer after knocking. This officer could smell the horrid stench and was as concerned as those now in front of Gary Hynek's house looking on curiously. The officer went around the side of the house and peeked in the kitchen window. He observed a pot boiling on the stove, a sign of life. He came back around to the front door and as he approached, Heineck stuck his head out. Everything okay in there? The officer asked. Fine, said Heineck. Just fell asleep and burned the hell out of my dinners all. The officer appraised the ragged-looking man. Heidnik stared back blankly. This apparently was good enough, and the officer left without much fuss. It wasn't illegal to burn dinner, after all. Heidnik returned to the kitchen where he hatched a plan to begin getting rid of the body. He took out a food processor and broke down some some of the cooked meat and mixed it with dog food. He then put together a few sandwiches for the girls downstairs. Dog food and human sandwiches. They'd be getting a little extra to eat over the next while. At least. An escape plan begins to form in the basement. One of the girls had discovered a steel pipe while digging out the floor. The plan was to eventually ambush Heidnik and bash him over the head with it. They'd figure out how to release themselves from the chains later. Josefina, who I mentioned in Part 1, was a controversial character in this whole mess. Uh, she informed Heinick of what the other girls were conspiring about. You heard Josephina speak at the beginning of this episode. I never said she was a good person. I just said she was street smart. Her main goal was to gain Heinick's trust so, so that, one, he would ease up on her a bit when it came to punishments, two, she could stop eating those horrible dog food sandwiches, and three, she could position herself to get a real chance at escape. Plan to bash Hynek was a bad one. Heinick was their only lifeline, like she said in the beginning. And if they killed him, they'd starve down there. Heinick was quite pleased with his prize prisoner for the information. He takes to stringing one of the girls up and tells the other two that they'll get their turn. After stuffing a bag in the first conspirator's mouth, Heineck pulls at a screwdriver and digs deeply into the bucking, writhing, terrified girl's ears with it, attempting to pop her eardrum. He lectures the screaming group to shut up and that this is for his protection so they won't be able to hear him coming or speak to one another, of murdering him any longer. Josephina watches on in horror as each of the girls is punished and the consequences of her betrayal plays out. What a fucking nightmare, I mean. Why do I feel like I need a Q-tip right now? Also, why do I feel like jumping out my window and punching a dog to death? You hear that? That goddamn dog? I mean, I'm I'm not a dog person, I'm not gonna lie to you, but... Bring him inside. It's like midnight. I got a, I got a kid sleeping. Oh, he's in. He's in. All right. No biggie. I'll put my screwdriver away. Deborah Dudley, who was the most troublesome girl for Hydnick, continued to fight at every opportunity. Heidnik had had enough, so he decided to try something new. He enlisted the help of Josephina to fill the pit with about a foot of water. If you remember from the last episode, uh, Deborah Dudley was one, two, three—I think the fourth—that he brought in, and uh, yeah, she fought at every, at every turn, and she's still fighting a couple of months in. Um, they filled Josephina filled the hole with water. Now being Heinrich's number one prisoner, and uh, he forced the other three girls into the hole who were in his doghouse for conspiring against him. He then brought out an extension cord and uh, cut off the end of it to expose the wires. He plugged it in and ordered Josephina to touch it to the chains of the girls in the pit, starting with Dudley. The girls who were piled on top of one another down in the water braced themselves as they heard this instruction. Josephina did as she was told. Down in the hole, Deborah Dudley stiffened, and yelled out that it was killing her. The others endured some residual shock, but Dudley was taking the brunt. Josephina stopped, and Heinic yelled at her to continue. Down below, Dudley has gone silent. The other two girls are screaming up that they think she's dead. Heinic rushes over, removes the hole's cover and pulls the two screaming girls out, observing that Dudley lays face down in the water. He reaches in and pulls the limp girl's head out of the water. After a moment, he drops it back in with a splash. He looks to the shivering girls behind him and says, Yep, you're right, she's dead. Well, hallelujah, my troubles are over now, I can get back to having a peaceful basement. Hynek pulls Deborah Dudley's body from the pit and checks again to ensure death. Deborah Dudley is the second to escape the house of horrors. Heidnik's in a happy, manic mood. He heads upstairs and leaves the others to gape at the body of their former cellar mate, sprawled out on the floor. He soon returns with a round of dog food sandwiches and a notepad. He pulls out a pen and hands it to Josephina. He then drops the notepad in her lap. Write this, he orders. Quote. March 18th, 1987. Heineck looks to his watch. 6.30 p.m. I, Nicole Rivera, and Gary Heineck killed Deborah Dudley by applying electricity to her chain while sitting in a pool of water in a hole in a basement of 3520 Marshall Street. End quote. Heineck then has Josefina sign the note, and then the others are told to do the same as witnesses. Heineck then signs it himself, then folds up the confession, and takes to unshackling Josephina Rivera. He tells the disbelieving girl that she's an accomplice now, and is just as culpable as him. The remaining two girls watch slack as Josefina is led upstairs. She's earned her way out of the cellar. Heinrich brings Josephine upstairs and showers her. He brings out some woman's clothes. It's not clear if they're her clothes or some other woman's. And dresses her. He then takes her out for dinner, where he explains what will happen next. Josephina listens on eagerly, elated to be out of the basement, out of captivity, and eating something other than a dog food sandwich for the first time in a while. After dinner, they return to the house, and Heineck allows her to sleep with them. In the cellar, the other two girls are left in their still-damp T-shirts, huddled together, stomachs churning and processing the body of Sandra Lindsay. Next to them lays Deborah Dudley. Heineck has decided to take care of that order of business the following day. This couldn't have been a good night. Not that there were any good nights, but the recently deceased tend to make intermittent sounds. The next morning, Heidnik, much to the relief of the traumatized girls, wrapped up the body and put it in the freezer. He'd find a spot to dump it later. Unlike his first victim, Heidnik had no known connection to Deborah Dudley, and therefore could risk its discovery. Heinick had decided to start bringing Josephina into the public eye with him. He posed her as a girlfriend in an attempt to alleviate the suspicions of Sandra Lindsay's family, who continued to pester him. He brought Josephina to the Elwin Institute, which is where he met Sandra originally, and had relationships with the Special Needs Center's clientele. While there, he slyly starts a rumor that Sandra's mother is actually responsible for the girl's disappearance, that maybe she's enjoying those social security checks. Just a thought, just a thought, just, you know, take care, gang. Church service Sunday, right? Off to take my girl Joy riding. Ta-ta. It's at this time that he decides to get rid of the body of Deborah Dudley with Josephina's help. The two of them haul the wrapped corpse of Dudley into his truck. I mentioned in part one that Heinick was quite well off due to stock purchases with the earnings from his church. He had a few vehicles, including this truck. Um, he also had the house and was a worth. He was worth around half a million dollars. Basically rich in 1987. This ability to make um, well-thought-out business moves would come back to haunt him while attempting to convince a jury that he was insane later on, soon after he and Josephina actually dump uh, Dudley's body somewhere on Philly's Pine Barrens. Spoiler alert. You guys know this can't go on forever. If it could, I wouldn't be talking about it because it'd still be happening as I'm as I'm sure at this moment something similar somewhere is. You ever think about that when you crawl into bed, how it's almost it's almost a guarantee that an abducted man, woman, or child is at that moment trying to get some sleep as well before their tormentor returns. Jesus just macro. Well, let me Let me step away for a second and clear something up. I'm, I'm not an investigator or an expert on these crimes. I become somewhat of one while I spend my nights digging into them. But with uh, with this single single person format, I don't really have the luxury to chew up time with with speculation or debate a theory about, say, a missing person's case. I mean, if there isn't any information out there, I can't produce anything. I've I've had a few requests to cover certain cases that I that I just can't do. So, you know, I'm not trying to be a dick when I when I turn this stuff down. It's just that I'm limited to what I feel competent in covering. And I'm flattered and I appreciate that you guys think I can go after some of this stuff. But, um, even though I bust Zupansky's balls, I'm I'm a huge fan of his podcast uh, with the long name. I I recommend you search his catalog of pods if you haven't already. A couple of Uh, The request I received, I know he's covered, on uh, on true murder, the most shocking killers in true crime history, and the authors who have written about them, (laughs) who I interview over a staticky phone, and sometimes they're not even on the line when I start the show. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Sidetrack City. So, Josephina proves herself to Heinick once again by accompanying him to dump the body, and not once giving him the feeling that she's going to bolt. The truth is, Josephina is going to take that chance until she's certain the time is right. This man is just too damn dangerous to take chances with. If you've ever seen the show Most Evil, where they rank prolific cr- uh, criminals on a scale of depravity, Heinick is at the very top of their scale his uh, crimes are not just evil and heinous they're drawn out you know for months there's no cool down time he's a red lining psychopath the next day heinick has his mind on replenishing his dwindling supply of basement ladies he and josefina have been hashing out a plan of action ever since a graduation from the cellar they'll use Josephina as bait It'll be much easier to convince a girl to come back to his place if Josephina is there, creating an illusion of safety. They pile into the Cadillac together, and Heidnik recklessly heads to his hunting ground. Josephina stares blankly ahead, unfazed by the maniacal, distracted driving of her captor. She's getting used to this guy. It's not Stockholm syndrome, but it's close. It's like maybe like more like more like Helsinki Helsinki syndrome or... How about Heid? Heidnicki. Heidnicki syndrome. Josephina soon spots someone she knows. Agnes Adams, a 24-year-old prostitute who had worked with her at a strip club back in the day. Heidnick watched with interest as his prized captive convinced Agnes to get in the vehicle and come back to North Marshall with them. Too easy. Once at the house, the three engage in in sex before Josephina steps back to grab a drink and observe the Heidnick maneuver, third person. Agnes Adams was dragged, kicking and screaming, downstairs and improperly introduced to the others. Then, thrown into the hole. Josephina and Heinrich then head back upstairs to celebrate. Heinrich isn't much of a drinker; he's on a natural high. But he stands. He uh, hands his partner a cooler. Ladies love coolers. And begins excitedly blueprinting his future patriarchy. Josephina expertly feigns interest as. She finally allows her mental gears of manipulation to begin grinding at a plan of escape. Speaking of grinding, what, what the hell has he been chopping up in this food process? And what the fuck kind of ribs are those on that burnt-ass pan since when can you buy them attached to the spine? Josephina continues nodding her head, but not in acknowledgement of the genius of Heidnik, she's nodding in agreement to herself that it's time to end this shit. Josefina Rivera begins to go to work manipulating the manipulator on March 24th, 1987. If you're not sick of this story by the time we're through here, there's an interview with her on YouTube that appears to have been taken soon after her escape. You heard a bit of it at the start of this episode. I've met versions of Josefina. They talk fast, think fast, uh, can shift gears to any topic with ease, and bullshit their way out of or into any situation. Say or think what you want about Josefina Rivera, a.k.a. Nicole, but without her, this whole thing may have lasted years, and it certainly would have been more victim. It was a gruesome game of Survivor, and, and she's the queen. She's the queen of this island. Heinrich was undoubtedly mentally ill, but remember, he was able to work the stock market to success, managed to start his own church, and collected six women in his basement, and held them for months raping torturing and beating the whole group killing and somewhat disposing of two of them along the way while evading suspicion from a police force who were who were one studious cop short of the whole thing being exposed to say heidnik had balls would be an understatement the guy had wrecking balls not balls it's balls but it's like he's mad it's madness i know this glorification but you gotta admit man He was also hyper-paranoid and under incredible pressure to stay on top of the whole thing, which makes what Josefina did next all the more impressive. I mentioned before that the psychopathic narcissist Achilles' heel is his ego. This was never so true as it was in the case of Gary Heidnik. Josefina bargains with him that if he lets her go and see her kids, she'll fast-track him to his goal of ten women. With her help, she says, they can have that number in no time. Even more if he felt like getting crazy about it. Hyde is dubious, but he's beginning to believe his own hype. Eventually, if his dream of a commune is to actually come to fruition, these girls are going to have to be trusted off a chain. You can't have ten women on a farm staked to your yard playing with kids and not raise suspicion. Josephina uh, sees him wavering and you know, comes in for the kill on the deal. She reminds Heidnik that she's culpable, that she killed Deborah Dudley, that she dumped the body with him, and that just last night she lured his newest captive into the car with him. Heidnik, maybe slapping together some grub for the girls, considers all of this and then finally agrees. Josephina even throws in that she'll bring a girl back to him from her apartment. Okay, Heidnik says. He'll just check on the girl's. Then they'll leave shortly. I think that Heinic just couldn't help himself. He he knew it was a bad idea to let Josephina go, but he just had to find out if he gained possession of her, you know, entirely. Because if that was true, it meant he could eventually turn others. They leave the house, and they go to a neighborhood that, you know, Josephina points out. Heinic pulls into a gas station. Uh, parking lot about four blocks from where she claims she needs to be. As Heineck pulls in and parks, he warns Nicole that if she doesn't come back within a certain amount of time, he'll go home and kill the girls. Josephina nods at him. Heidnik nods back. Josephina Rivera gets out of the vehicle. I'll bet that nobody in the history of captivity has completed a more perfect deception, considering the circumstances. Heidek sits back in his comfy Cadillac seat and looks on confidently as Josephina, still in character, casually walks away. Maybe even looking back with a conspiratory glance. She exits the lot, turns a corner, and sheds the facade. Josephina runs. The route must have felt like the opposite of déjà vu. She should have been here before. Four months earlier, after a twenty-buck romp with Mr. Cadillac, Josephina slams into her boyfriend's door and begins knocking and ringing the bell simultaneously. Until he finally answers, she jumps at him like a ghost, and I can't—I can't imagine. Here's a direct quote from Josephina's boyfriend at this moment: "Quote. She came in and." We were walking up the steps. She was rambling on, you know, talking real fast about this guy having three girls chained up in the basement of his house. She was held hostage for four months. She said that two of the girls were dead and he had three more in a hole in the basement floor chained up and he was going to kill them if she didn't come back with another girl in a certain amount of time. She said he was beating them, raping them, had them eating dead people, just like he was a cold-blooded nut. Dog was in the yard eating people's bones. I just thought she was crazy. I mean, I really didn't believe it and I I still don't believe this shit. End quote. Josefina tries to stop her boyfriend from heading to the gas station in a rage, but can't. She follows him down the street, begging him to stop. You don't understand, she pleads. This guy's really crazy. Like, real crazy. He'll drive away if he sees us and go kill those girls. Finally, he concedes and they stop at a payphone a couple blocks from where Heidnik waits josephina spills the information again to the operator she's exhausted can sense the skepticism on the other line and can still sense a little from her boyfriend as well regardless a squad car is sent to the gas station and it pulls up on the cadillac heidnik is pulled from the car at gunpoint. he's asking over and over again is this about child support i pay the support is this about child support one cop tells him if what we hear is true it's a lot more serious than that. The police find Josephina, and she bravely identifies Heineck face to face. He's whisked away to the station. Josephina begs them to send someone to go get the girls. There are three girls chained up in a hole at 3520 North Marshall Street. Police swarm Heineck's home. Inside, grizzled vets tenderize as they take in the situation in the cellar. Two girls sit chained on a mattress. When they see it's the police... They begin celebrating. They're half naked, malnourished and chained. We're saved, they scream. We're saved. Then suddenly they stop. In there, they say. There's another girl in the pit. Officers remove the sandbags and pull the wood cover off the concrete hole. Agnes Adams pops out, wild-eyed and jovial. She exclaims with shocking toughness and humor that that bastard owes her 30 bucks. One girl begs for some ice cream that she knows Gary keeps in the freezer that so recently stored a dead body. Officials resist this request in case of tampering evidence. Later, as the group's brought out of the house, they'll spot cookies on a table and scramble for them, shoving the food in their mouths before they can be stopped. Upstairs, another officer exits the house to keep from vomiting after discovering a forearm in the fridge. Downstairs, the stunned officials look on as the clamps are removed from the ankles of the liberated trio. They're rejoicing, laughing, smiling ear to ear, and repeating that they're free. They're free, oh man, man, they're They're finally free. Gary Heidnick was put on display for the world to see. The House of Horror's Killer, People Collector, Brother Bishop, He was brought in front of a judge and, under the bright lights of the high-profile case, a guard went to unshackle Heineck and fumbled to do so as his hands shook. Heineck looked down amused and then peered up at the judge and said, I think there's something wrong with this man. Heineck was eventually sentenced to death by lethal injection. He was executed on July 6, 1999, the last man to be executed in Pennsylvania. He requested two cups of black coffee and two slices of cheese pieces as his final meal. Come on, man, you gotta be, you gotta go to bed soon, pal. He had no final words. A witness to the execution said his face flushed, then went ashen. You should be embarrassed, sir. Okay, and holy shit, that was really uh, hard to get through, wasn't it? I'm sorry, I didn't. Couldn't edit it better. Um, I just got tired of hearing myself, and I couldn't. I I'm, I barely was able to put that out. I hope you enjoyed it. I think it was okay. I mean, that was my fifth ever episode that I released back in 2017, and I found it, and that's the one that hasn't been around for a very long time. So you asked for it. Some of you did. Uh, those who didn't, my apologies. <laughs> Uh, not only was it hard to get through with the content, but the delivery was a little off as like a lot of pausing. Um, but I, I think it maybe it's kind of interesting f- to see, you know, maybe my development. Um, so, uh, to be honest with you, I, I kind of enjoyed some of that more than I enjoy some of my more recent episodes. Not that I sit around listening to my episodes all the time. Anyways, here's something really strange I wanted to share at the end here. So this case happened... Some of you might remember Shore. I would talk to Shore as a friend of mine. I met through the podcast. I met him doing this episode, the Gary Hydenic case. He emailed me and uh, had some additional information for me, uh, which was annoying because the episode was already done. <laughs> but but the thing is is that uh, we became friends, and uh, we're fr- we haven't spoken actually for about a year. So. This morning, I find this old Gary Hydnick case. And uh, then I start developing this episode, this double feature today. And as I'm, you know, going through it, there are flies all over the place all of a sudden here. It's warmed up. Um, as I'm going through it and I'm editing it, I get a message from Shore. We haven't, honestly, okay, let's see. So the last time we spoke was, let's see if I can see, October 27th. So my birthday. And what is it now? April 30th. So out of nowhere, this morning, I get a message around 10 a.m. He says, what's up, brother nature? I know it's been a minute and a half, but just sending some love your way. And I say, bro, I just found my old Heidnik episode. I'm editing it this morning. I found it two hours ago. And he says, no and way. That's what it was. I had this weird feeling that I needed to text you. And I say, oh, man, I guess there is magic in the world. And he says how'd you bros meet over some high and some fava beans and a nice chicanti and then i say hope you're well pal i'll message you later on just in the mix here that's unbelievable and he says have fun with that back in the day buffet brother and i says ha 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 very nice and then he sent me a picture of his dick and i sent him a picture of my butthole and um we're back in action me and him back bros are back i can't can you believe that i mean a lot of things. He lives in the States. I live in Canada. It's because I'm in this back room where I first started the podcast. And um, this is episode five, like I said. And I'm having this nostalgia while I'm trying to edit it and put it together. And and then the guy from the beginning, sure, where we connected on this episode, texts me after months. Wow, there is magic in the world. All right. Eyes cocked, doors locked stay paranoid and I'll be back at you real soon thank you so much for everything what's that it's been seven years I think some people think i just kind of came around because I cancelled Dark Topic but no I'm, I'm an OG <laughs> if you didn't know I'm an OG I'm one of the big dogs one of the, one of the and you're gonna I'm just joking and you're gonna see me collaborate soon with one of the biggest dogs in true crime podcasting stay tuned for that One of the good guys this time. (laughs) Thank you.